Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The prophet Zechariah penned these words 2,500 years ago, and they were fulfilled in Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. The reason why the first Sunday in Advent is paired with the text of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem is generally twofold. In the first place, we see that he comes in humility, both in his incarnation and in his entrance into Jerusalem. In the second place, we see that he comes to make atonement. As we approach Christmas, we remember that the cross is the reason for Christmas. We also then see how the arrogance of man is contrasted with the humility of God. In our day and age of space exploration, of scientific discovery, of technological advancement, humility is not exactly our strong suit. And all of these things that we boast in come as a gift from God. So too, if and when the coronavirus uh, vaccine does roll out, And if it is as effective as everyone hopes, that will be granted to us not by human ingenuity, but by our God. The title of my homily this morning is The Antidote to Arrogance. The Antidote to Arrogance. In one sense, the only final antidote to arrogance is death. (laughs) Only when we are dead will we cease to be arrogant. But in the meantime, there is an antidote to arrogance in our earthly lives. And that comes from a rather surprising place, from the humility of God. When we think of God with our fallen human reason, we often don't think of him as being very humble. In fact, there are theological systems designed on this lack of humility in God. God simply everywhere seeking his glory. Whereas biblically, we see a God who has glory and who is willing to humble himself in service to the lowest of the low, to sinners. So Zechariah, so Matthew, behold, your king is coming to you humble, and riding on a donkey. Borrowing heavily from a sermon preached by Christendom's greatest preacher next to Jesus and the apostles, St. John Chrysostom, we might reflect on these things. The birth our Lord chose was not into a splendid home, nor did he look for a rich and illustrious mother, but instead he looked for a poor woman, whose husband was a carpenter. He was born in a stable and placed into a manger. And when he chose his apostles, he did not choose scholars and wise men, nor rich and highborn, but poor men of poor families and everywhere unknown. He had no permanent home himself. His bed was of common material. His clothing was plain and in common use. When he traveled, he did so by foot. When he sat down, it wasn't on a throne, but on the ground or whatever was nearby. 
At the climax of his life and ministry, he chose to enter Jerusalem on a donkey. He weeps as he enters, for the people do not understand who he truly is or what he has come to do. They do not know what makes for their peace. They desire peace on earth, but not peace with God. He comes not on a chariot like other kings, nor demanding a tribute, nor surrounded by officers and guards. He comes to die, and to die for sinners, to shed his holy blood in atonement for our sins, to give himself over in death that we might have life, to grant us the most important, the only true peace there is, peace with God. As Chrysostom shows us, the antidote to our arrogance is the humility of our God, the humility of our Lord Jesus Christ in the incarnation, in the womb of a poor virgin girl, his humble life which culminates in his humble entrance to Jerusalem, his humble death where he is mocked, derided, spat upon, and cursed by sinners, and even in a sense his humble resurrection. He rises and shows himself, yes, to 500, but he does so relatively quietly, not bragging about it, not flying around through the skies, showing himself risen. And this poses itself as a challenge to us, this humility of God, a challenge to receive him as he is. God doesn't meet our expectations. That's something we're usually not honest enough to say. It's certainly true in the church. It's certainly true as we look at the church's leadership, what we call in the LCMS ecclesiastical supervisors. It's also true in your pastors. Just as he chose poor and uneducated men to be his apostles, he chooses men to lead his church, well, that leave us wanting for a little more, to say the least. And that also doesn't fit our expectations when we consider these men and the means our Lord has given them. That the church is to grow by the preaching of the gospel, by the administration of the sacraments, by a little water in the font and a little bread and wine on the altar. These things do not meet our expectations. And then once we're in the church and have been in the church for a few years, we find that the church is filled with sinners. And the church doesn't meet our expectations. And sometimes we even flit from one congregation to another looking for a congregation without sinners. Some of you are still looking. <laughs> God doesn't meet our expectations. That's true for us personally as well. In the prayers we pray and we find not answered or at least not answered in the way that we had hoped. Also true in the decisions we make. Sometimes we find ourselves angry saying, Lord, I did the best I could with the information I had. You know all things. Why didn't you guide me in a better way? It can even be true with major life decisions. The spouse we choose. The career path we pick. And also in the great 
sorrows of life, we see that God doesn't fit our expectations. It's true especially in terms of the health of our loved ones, the health of ourselves, and of course, as you get older, you face certain indignities, and those are less than pleasant too. Why is it that God has this path in store for me and that path in store for you? Here's the question then. Is it God that is the problem? Or is it our expectations of what God should be, of what God should be like, and thus what this life should be like? To be absolutely honest with you, when meditating on these things, I very often find myself wishing that God was not as he is. And it's not long thereafter that I also reflect on this fact. That's pretty much the heart of sin, the root of idolatry. Lord, have mercy. To answer the arrogance of our sin, God puts forth his son, Jesus, in the humility of his incarnation, his humble entrance into Jerusalem, his death on the cross, for which, by which he makes atonement for all our sins. We are called to receive him as he is, to humble ourselves in such a way that we set aside our expectations and let God be God in exactly the way God chooses to be. And then also allow ourselves to be conformed to him, become ever more as he is. I know many individuals, especially our children, we're all accumulating our Christmas lists. Here's a Christmas list I'd wish for you to consider as we draw nearer to that day. Here are the three things on the list. One, repentance. Two, humility. And three, joy. We would ask that God grant us these things. Repentance, because a broken spirit and a contrite heart, God does not despise. Humility, that we may be humbled in order to receive more of the humble one. The one who rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, the one who enters our lives in such humble and quiet ways. And last but not least, joy but not joy in the things of the earth, not joy in the things that are me, the joy in the things that are you. Joy in those things that are the Lord's. It's no mistake that the Lord's Prayer begins with three petitions directly related to God and the things of God, not us and the things of us. Repentance, humility, and joy. And it is these very things that our Lord distributes here at his altar. When we will say in our liturgy in a few moments those very same words that the crowd said as Jesus was entering Jerusalem, we say as he enters into us, uh, enters into our presence by way of his sacramental presence. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who, as Augustine and Luther say, is cradled on the altar for us. 
Blessed is he who rides to us and enters into us by bread and wine. He answers our repentance with forgiveness. He teaches us humility by emptying us of all that we are and have, which is only sin, by the way, and then filling us with himself. And he gives to us a joy that no sorrow can take away, the joy of the cup of his salvation. Behold, your king is coming to you this morning, humble in word, in bread, in wine. So rejoice, my brothers and sisters, in Christ. It's the beginning of Advent, the beginning of a new church year, and it's the beginning of a most beautiful and festive season. So let us prepare our hearts and minds to meditate on his incarnation and atonement and to put to death ahead of time that arrogance that is within us by the blessed humility of our God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.